Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's PTPOV. Today we are discussing the heavy but important topic of compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is something that will impact all healthcare providers at some point in their career, and it's often under-discussed. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, friends. Good morning, Mags. Morning, Maggie. Uh, Carly, as the as the bride of the week, um, what, what's on your mind, if anything, you know? If, if anything. Well, lots of things. Um, if I just like stop talking, it's probably because I've started writing down the 400th thing that I've forgotten <laughs> to remember. Um, countdown is on. We are six days away from my wedding. Um, which feels super surreal because when we first like booked our venue and picked a date, it was 612 days. Oh my from gosh. The <laughs> what? Yep. You so we are now that six. far. Yeah. We booked in, I mean, we got engaged in October of 2020 and it was already when the wedding stuff was like, everyone was predicting that 21 was going to be nuts. And so we're like, eh, let's get on books you know, I'm marrying into a farming family. So pretty much like June or December is when you can get married if you want anyone to attend. Um, so we're like, man, let's June, 2022 sounds great. That's fine. And now it's six days away and I don't know how that happened, (laughs) but that's so exciting. um, Yeah. My house is a mess. My brain is a mess. Um, if it's, you know, if it's legal, uh, then it'll be a success. (laughs) That's what I remember from when my brother and sister-in-law got married, which was a long time ago. But I remember somebody coming up to them and saying, you know what, at the end of the day, if you walk down the aisle and it's official, then it's a success and everything else is just a bonus. Pretty much. (laughs) That's what we were saying last night is we're like, let's practice a first dance. And we are the two least coordinated, most awkward human beings I know. And we're just like, six inches leave room for jesus and sway <laughs> i had to turn to brain and go do you know what the beat of music is because i don't one of us does and i don't think it's you <laughs> so i will definitely be having my phone out for that first dance is that what oh, you're saying yeah. yeah does america's funniest home videos still exist <laughs> be a little be a little treat first dance version <laughs> Do you have your song picked out? Don't tell me because I want it to be a surprise. I do. But... I do. Okay. Yes. Did we change it last night at one o'clock this morning? You bet. <laughs> you bet we did. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's funny. We're wigging it, you guys. We're wigging it. We're going for legal here, folks. <laughs> How about you, Megs? What's on your mind? Oh my gosh. I had the the moving into the house nightmare this week. So excited that we finally got our house. We got the keys. We moved in uh, yesterday. I know very exciting, but what happened was we, when we bought the house, we knew of a spot of mold that we needed to get tested. So we got it tested and they needed to professionally come in and clean it, which is not cheap. Seems like it should be cheaper, but it is not. And when they did that, they told us that, oh yeah, we'll just prop up your kitchen sink. We are not going to touch your countertops because they're tile. And if we touch them, like if we try and remove them at all, they're just going to shatter. We're like, yeah, that'd be great if you didn't touch those. Did not do that. <laughs> um, so we get to the house on, I want to say it was 
Wednesday or Thursday just to take a load from the apartment. And it was still all tarped off, like, cause they have to do the negative pressure stuff in there. And there was a big fan that was still running in there, but we knew we had the verbal confirmation that the mold was all taken care of. So I called them and I said, Hey, can I unplug this? I don't want to pay for it. They said, yes. So I unzip the tarp and go in there and just half of my kitchen is just gone. It's just completely gone. There is no sink. There is no countertop. There are no (gasps) cabinets on the bottom part. And I'm sitting there like, uh, Henry, like, do you, do you see our countertop anywhere (gasps) out there? And so we're like going in the backyard. We're like, you know, best case scenario, maybe they just took it off in a big chunk and they're going to put it all back together. Right. And I'm like panicking blood pressure, heart rate. Um, so our countertop is just nowhere, just nowhere. Our kitchen sink is like off to the side of the kitchen, just sitting there on the, on the floor. The dishwasher has been taken out all of that stuff. And I am like, what in the hell happened? So I called the company and I'm like, Hey, um, so I was under the impression that I'd still have a kitchen as of this week when we're moving in. And apparently what happened was the mold, like they have a rule if the mold is greater than three feet from the cabinet. I don't know. They have to take out the cabinet. Well, the countertop had a lip over the cabinet. So they had to take off the countertop. And like I mentioned, it's tile. It just completely shattered. So, um, impromptu kitchen remodel time. And then all my eyes are seeing our dollar signs. The worst part is our kitchen Island and the backsplash have the same kind of tile that the countertop did. So we can't just replace the countertop. (laughs) We have to replace the whole kitchen Island countertop and the backsplash. And in the meantime, while we're waiting, we don't have a kitchen sink. Um, so we're going to have to wash oh all God. of our dishes in the bathtub or outside in the 115 <laughs> degree Phoenix heat. So um, oh that's God. what's on my mind this week. As the fact <laughs> that you are saying this without openly weeping proves that you are a stronger woman than I am. Oh <laughs> I think I'm God. out of tears. I think that I just like am so overwhelmed with the situation that nobody told me that this was happening. And you know, what's funny about it is I actually talked to the owner of the company. He's like, this is what needed to happen. I am at peace with the fact that if they would have called me and said, Hey, we have to take off your countertop to get the mold. I would have said, yes. I mean, we couldn't have left the mold, but it's just the fact that like, I had no communication and I just walked into a kitchen that was not a kitchen anymore when I was expecting it to be a kitchen. So, um, yeah, any kitchen designer people out there listening, if you want to send me some, uh, ideas that are cheap, um, and not going to cost me 10 grand after I put down most of my savings on this house, that'd be great. So, oh my God, uh, my heart hurts. (laughs) (laughs) My heart is racing. I'm so anxious for you. (laughs) And it was like, yeah, it was just one of those things where yeah, you're just walking into it completely blindsided. It would have been so much better if I would have been able to mentally prepare for this. Uh, so yeah, meeting with the contractor on Monday. Oh my oh. God. <laughs> you have any idea what it's going to cost? Uh, no, no. But part of me is, I know, I know. <laughs> anxious giggles. Part of me is like, 
you know, I don't want to half-ass this and then feel like we need to again redo it later. So I want to like do it right. But at the same time, you just, I mean, we just bought the house 10 days ago. It's like, you know, unexpected things are going to come up with home ownership, but um, not within the first like week. Well, let me know what happens because I would still love to renovate our kitchen like eventually. So if you find a good contractor, maybe we'll use them when we do our kitchen. Well, there you go. Maybe I could (laughs) (laughs) actually plan ahead for it. Uh, That's how I would recommend recommend it. But um, anyways, we'll we'll make it through. Just going to be a little bit of a of a whirlwind. So wow, Kara, I hope what's on your mind is less stressful than mine. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because um, our uh, bridal shower invitations went out like a week or two ago. And because our shower is in Michigan and we are in Arizona, we're just having everybody send the gifts to our house here. But that means now ever since the invitations went out, we have like five packages on our doorstep like every single day. And it's just, it's really fun. It's like Christmas every day, but then also it's like, oh my gosh, we need to add more stuff to our registry. Cause I didn't think we would get this much this soon. And so it's like, what now we're just trying to brainstorm what else to put on our registry. Even if it's like something completely ridiculous, but it's like, I don't know what else to do, <laughs> but it's been fun. So that's Christmas it, every so. day. Christmas every day. Love that, it. That is much better than my cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh and that's just for your shower not even for your wedding yet (laughs) yeah Uh, that's just for the shower that's why I'm getting really nervous it's like our registry is like almost completely like done now and it's like oh shoot you just collect money for a honeymoon (laughs) like I didn't think or for a kitchen remodel I know (laughs) I know that's kind of what I'm hoping at this point it's like I know some people just really prefer to give gifts yeah but it's like a lot of people got a lot of stuff already just for the shower. And it's like, I don't know, but yeah, I'm like, please give me money. I'm sorry. Give us money. <laughs> I keep forgetting. This is about both of us. I keep forgetting <laughs> that these gifts thing. are not just for me. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you guys ready fun, to get into it? Let's do it. All right. So the topic of the day today is compassion fatigue. And this is definitely a a heavier topic that we're getting into, but equally important as everything else, because every clinician at some point will, I think will experience this. Um, I think for me, I experienced it a lot sooner in my career than I was expecting, but we can definitely get into that as well. But let's start first by Um, introducing the topic by trying to define it a little bit, because I know that some people don't have as much experience with this kind of concept as others, just depending on where you went to school and what setting you're in and what uh, things you've Googled or experienced. But I know that when I first kind of learned about compassion fatigue, it just clicked. I was like, oh yeah, that's what I've been feeling. So do one of you want to try and define it or should I read the Wikipedia uh, definition first? <laughs> Let's start with Dr. Wiki. <laughs> Dr. Wikipedia. Okay. <clears throat> Compassion fatigue is a condition characterized by emotional and physical exhaustion leading to a diminished ability to empathize or feel compassion for others. 
and it's often described as the negative cost of caring. So to kind of summarize, to me, it really means that when you're caring for somebody and trying to have compassion all day for so many different people, eventually it it just starts getting to you and it just starts kind of like building upon itself and making it really hard to, to continue to have compassion and continue to care about these people in their lives. And I think that again, when I said burnout guilt in one of the very first episodes, it's, it's definitely a feeling, excuse me, definitely a feeling that makes me feel guilty, even admitting that this is a thing because uh, it is something that, yeah, it, it makes it hard to care for people when, when you've been caring for people for, for so long and for so much time. So Let's start by just one of you can hop on and explain how you feel like this compassion fatigue has impacted you and your practice and how you've experienced it. Well, I can start. Um, I, so in inpatient rehab, I think is a, one of the heavier settings, you know, as far as physical therapy practice goes, I'm a lot of the times I'm meeting people at like the lowest time in their life and their worst nightmare has just happened to themselves or their family members. Um, So when you are practicing in this setting and you have five, six patients on your caseload and all of them are going through the worst thing that they can imagine, it it gets heavy fast. So I definitely um, think I started experiencing compassion fatigue pretty early in my career because it's every day, you know, Um, every single patient just had a stroke or fell and now they can't go home by themselves. And there's lots of social, um, you know, situations. And I, I really don't feel like I was prepared for that before, you know, we, we talked about in residency, we talked about it a little bit, but prior to that, yep. One day, one one hour, hour. um, I mean, it was one of my post-grad surprises feeling other people's feelings is so exhausting, um, and hard. And I, I really resonate with Maggie saying that it feels guilty because I think that our ability to be compassionate and to empathize with our patients, sympathize with our patients is what makes so many of us really good clinicians. And when you feel like you can't do that, you feel like you're not good at your job Yeah, and that sucks. So Carly, you said that you felt it really early in your career. We've been out of school for about three years now. Where along that timeline do you think that you were, it kind of clicked in your head of like, okay, yeah, this is, this is a lot. You know, I, I don't know that if I, if I experienced it in residency, I don't know that I was able to recognize that that's what it was because we were busy and I was in a whole bunch of different settings. We were all over the place. Um, I think it was, you know, when I first transitioned into this job and was full-time inpatient rehab and I would have it in little spurts, you know, a really hard week where I've got a really heavy caseload or, um, and I'd get home on Friday and, um, I joke with one of my coworkers, like, I don't do things on Fridays. I can't do things. Cause I just had the whole week of feeling people's feelings. Um, and it was probably about a year into practice in this setting where, it really started to click that like, it's, it's heavy. Like I'm by the end of the week, I'm, I feel beat emotionally, which is not a feeling that I think I was 
I even experienced prior to it's, it's hard to explain feeling emotionally exhausted unless you're like in it you're like, oh, I can't feel anymore. I can't feel any more things. <laughs> I think it's interesting. You mentioned like at the end of the week and the weekend, because I've been feeling a lot of like, I get to the end of the week and I'm relieved and I'm like, okay, I have two days to recover, but it's not two days to relax and two days to do self-care. It's two days to physically recover and then Monday morning, you're back at it. And you're like, wow, this was, I needed like a day or two after recovery to like chill and let my brain <laughs> mm -hmm. like settle versus like, okay, I just got back to baseline and now I'm ramping it back up again. Yep. I feel like that happens to me a lot on weekends where it's like Saturday. It's like the whole day goes by and, I, and it's like, okay, time for bed. And then I look back at my day and I'm like, I literally did nothing, but it's like, sometimes you just need that time to just do nothing <laughs> and think of nothing and just recover. And yeah, I don't absolutely. know. And then you feel bad that you didn't do anything with your day or your weekend too. So it's just like a vicious cycle sometimes. Yeah. Kara, do you have anything to add specifically in your <laughs> practice that you feel? I mean, secondhand traumatic stress is a very real thing. And that goes hand in hand with compassion fatigue, um, especially in my practice too, doing pelvic health. Like I'm going, I, it goes through cycles. And right now I'm actually going through a pretty difficult cycle where I'm dealing with like which it sounds so selfish. Cause it's like, I'm dealing with this, but really it's like the patient's dealing with it, but then they tell you about it. And it's just like, you take on so much of that burden, but it's like, um, a patient who like lost her infant child, a patient that has been going through a lot of other emotional things, some loss, like lost a spouse in the past year. Another patient that told me that she was physically, um, and sexually abused by her biological father when she was a child. And it's like, wow, some of that stuff is just really heavy. And it just, it really sucks that it's like, that's still on your mind when you go home at the end of the day. So yeah. it could be really, really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it goes through phases where sometimes it's like, oh, everybody's like having a pretty decent time of life and things like that. And then you'll just get this wave of people that just have like the most horrible stories and horrible stress and trauma. And it's just like, wow, it's, it's really, really heavy. Yeah. You want so bad to be able to help make it even a centimeter better. That's probably not the correct yeah. measuring <laughs> device. At a certain point, it's like, what do you say? It's like, you want to say so much, but it's like, you don't want to be like crying with them. But at the same time, it's like, I am so sorry. And it's like, that just never sounds sincere enough. And yeah, it's just like, it's it's so hard to know what to say. Cause it's mm -hmm. like, I cannot imagine what some of these people have been through and it's yeah. so hard to know what to do. I feel like in, in my practice, I resonate with that. It comes in waves. There was a period of time. I just got over this because I have discharged a lot of people recently, but it was every Wednesday. I had, I see six patients in a row in the morning and every Wednesday it was at least four out of the six were the ones that I could predict were going to cry as soon as they came in. And mm -hmm. by the time I would get to lunch, I was just like sitting there, just staring at my computer. Like I haven't done a single note. I've been super inefficient because I've been trying to think of what to say versus spend my brain power, like point of service documenting. 
Um, I don't even want to go back and finish my notes because then I have to like relive everything that I just tried to deal with in the morning and try and summarize a whole 10 minute conversation. It's like, I only plan for 30 minutes of a treatment session because I know the first 15 minutes of my 45 is just going to be tears and like trying to get them back on track. And, and then if they're there two times a week, then you do it all again on Thursday when you just did it on Monday. But yeah, it's just that you want to help so bad and you want to be the one in my practice, at least that I want to so bad, be the one that breaks that chronic pain cycle. I want to be the one that they've considered surgery or maybe even had surgery. They've been on opioids. They've had everything. And you want to be the person that makes a difference in their life. But some of the best advice I received early in my career was no matter how hard you try, no matter how much clinical training you have, no matter if you have a specialty, if you're a fellow, if you're not either of those things, no matter how much time you put into planning your sessions and caring for these people, you are never, ever going to be able to help everyone that walks into your door. And that's something that as a young clinician has been really hard for me to get over. We all have a little bit of a hero complex. (laughs) I'm going to be the one to fix it, right? (laughs) Well, I think you get so excited coming out of school and coming out of residency, even of like, man, like I have so many skills. I know I can help so many people that it's hard when you can't and it gets to you. Well, that's even what I read too. when I was like looking up stuff into this a while back. So I don't remember where I read it, but it was basically just saying that young professionals, like people right out of school going into work, it's like, they're the ones that are at most, most at risk for developing compassion fatigue because of just that. It's like, you come out with all this knowledge, you want to fix everybody. So you're really about helping all your patients. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's so exhausting and you have to know what strategies to use to help combat that so that you can be good at your job, but be good at your job with all of your patients equally, instead of just using all of your energy first patient in the morning at 7am and then having no energy for the rest of your day. Yeah. I feel bad for the people (laughs) in my Wednesday afternoons of like, I am just really trying hard to hang on here, but it's very challenging. You have four o'clock patient rolls in and you're just like, "Ah, (laughs) one more hour. (laughs) Uh, What symptoms do you guys have? Like, how do you know in the time, like when it's happening to you, how do you know that? Yeah, this is, I'm getting fatigued here and I need to address this or at least acknowledge it it kind of feels like depression almost. And that's when it, it, it's really difficult because you, or at least for me, I get symptoms of, I start finding less joy in things, even in my personal life, just because I'm so consumed by things that I'm thinking about with my patients and at work and things like that. And I even find myself sometimes I'll be like looking on LinkedIn, not like to say that I'm actually actively looking for another job, but sometimes I'm like, Hmm, what would it be like to be like a, like a clinical reviewer for an insurance company and just work from home? Yeah. And it's like, when I find myself scrolling through that, it's like, Oh, like, okay, we're in this cycle of (laughs) compassion fatigue again. And we need to do something about that because this isn't right. And then I usually get past that by doing self-care and things like that. And then it's like, okay, then I'm back to like, being normal and being like, yep, I'm a physical therapist. I love being a physical therapist. I love my patients, but it's like every once in a while, I kind of go through those cycles where it's like, Ooh, this is a lot. (laughs) And sometimes I just don't know if I can do it, but then I cycle right back and everything's fine. Mm -hmm. 
What about you, Carls? I think for me, it feels like kind of like your definition, very numb. Like I can, I can recognize it when it's happening because I'll be in, you know, a situation that would typically feel really emotionally charged, like a patient's tearful and, and telling me a story or, you know, talking about what they're feeling. And I'm, I don't, I don't feel like I know that if this had happened Monday morning or a week ago when I had, you know, kind of an easy breezy caseload, I would, I would be tearing up and I would be feeling things. But right now I'm thinking about the documentation that I have to get done. And, um, you know, uh, is someone else going to come in right now? And what should I be saying in this situation? You know, I'm not like, I'm not present, I'm not feeling things. And I know right away, cause I, I, I'm typically try to be, you know, very empathetic and very positive to my patients and, um, you know, try and like I said, be that the something that makes it a centimeter better. And I don't care if that's wrong. I'm going to keep saying it from henceforth. I like it. That's <laughs> a, I have a funny story about feeling numb really quick. Um, Go. I, I have a patient, one of my Wednesday, one of my Wednesday patients, um, <laughs> she's, she's pretty young and she has a touch of an intellectual disability, just enough to like, call me out when my hair's messy or like, if I haven't slept that night and be like, are you okay? Um, and I've been working with her forever. So I know her pretty well, but there was one day she was at like my last slot before lunch on Wednesday. And I had just a really rough morning with everybody. And she was, she was crying and telling me about something that had happened to her, something she was stressed about. And I just had this like blank stare on my face and I was just trying so hard to hold it together. And she looked at me and she's like, are you okay? And in that moment, it was wild because I was sitting there like, how do I explain to you that I still care when I am just so numb that I can't even like blink, <laughs> I'm just yep. blank staring at you and you, you can notice. And that made me feel terrible because, and that's that guilt of like, I want to be there for her, but when I have to do it every single week and I just did it all morning, it's like, I just need five minutes to sit and not think. And then I will be, <laughs> that's when I put them on the new step and say, <laughs> give me Warm five. Up. I'm going to go over yeah. here. <laughs> Any other symptoms for you, Carly? When I interrupted you with that story. No, you're good. I was just going to say some, so that is, I would, I would say that is most typically what I'm feeling, but sometimes it is the absolute further, furthest possible end of the spectrum where I come home and I just burst into tears and it was, there's Aww. absolutely no provocation. Um, brain can be like, oh, how's your day? And all of a sudden I'm crying. Um, and it's like, either I'm feeling absolutely nothing or I have, I get home and it's everything crashing in at the exact same time. All five of my patient's <laughs> feelings are now in my brain. And, and they're now, all coming um, out now. <laughs> they're all coming out of my eyes. <laughs> Brian was like, sometimes. I just asked you to refill the water. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I think that that plays into another symptom I have is definitely irritability. And I find myself taking it out on other people in my life who have no, no control over my work life. Like uh, Henry, my, my lovely boyfriend of just, um, yeah, refilling the water or doing something so simple will just put me over the edge. <laughs> um, 
I also mentioned earlier, I definitely get more inefficient at work. I mean, I, I have, I struggle to finish my notes. I struggle to point of service document. I struggle to some days I'll just leave my notes and come back in Thursday morning or the next morning, you know, um, if I just can't finish them at the time. And then another, I get tired. So I will feel like I need to go to bed early. I'll stop going to the gym because I just like need to sit when I get home. Um, and that plays into a little bit of our work-life balance podcast that we had. And then finally, to kind of differentiate this from burnout, I think compassion fatigue plays into burnout. And I think a lot of the symptoms are the same. It can feel like a lot of different things contributing, but I definitely feel more burnt out when I have increases in compassion fatigue. I, I don't remember if it was, I think it was the very first podcast we did the top three post-grad surprises of how I was feeling a little bit burnt out. And when I reflected on that a little bit of saying like, I love my coworkers, my manager's super supportive. I like my hours really it is that compassion fatigue component. I was just going through a really, really rough patch with patients. So it comes in waves right now. I'm in a really good wave. I feel like made it over the hump. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel. If any of you are feeling this way. <laughs> I'm glad that you differentiate that though. Cause that's exactly how I feel too. It's like, when I think about my job, it's like, I like my coworkers and like, it's honestly a really, really sweet gig. And at the end of the day, it's like, when I feel like this, it's like, I know it's just the compassion fatigue. I know it's just mm-hmm. taking on the burden of other people's feelings and other yeah. people's past traumas. And that's kind of what helps. Yeah. You can't change what patients walk through your door. I mean, you can't exactly. say, yeah, I'll just give this one to Sally and I'll give this one to someone else. And <laughs> but that's why I get so grumpy sometimes when they'll put like four or five evals on my schedule in a day. And it's like, I don't know what these patients are going to be like that day. And if I have four evals of like really emotional, a lot of baggage, like that's really difficult for me. And I feel like it's not fair to do that. It's like, that's the only reason why I don't like when they try to give me more evals than what I want. Cause it's like, there's a reason why I try to limit it to like two or three in a day. It's like, I don't know what those patients are going to be like. And at the end of the day, that's potentially a lot of burden on me if it doesn't go Mm -hmm. super swimmingly well. (laughs) I think that's a good segue into like how we can deal with this. And a lot of this comes from just personally, we have to figure it out because systemically there aren't going to be as many changes as we like, but I do think that that would be a good systemic change of working with each individual therapist to know like, what are your limits emotionally? (laughs) It sounds weird (laughs) to phrase it that way, but it, it, I mean, it really is true. And I think that they don't just systemically, not specifically talking about our hospital or anything, but They don't really consider like us as people as much as like productivity standards and what should you be able to handle versus like, what can you handle emotionally and like to decrease burnout? Like it's tough to get home on time when you have over two evals in a day, let alone like five, which happens sometimes, but also thinking about I know one way that I can really help my compassion fatigue is going on vacation and taking time off, I think helps so, so much because you get excited about even, even a staycation, but if you're going somewhere, you get excited about it. You spend some time planning it mentally. You're like, okay, this is going to be fun. And then you just, you don't think about work during that time in theory. 
and <laughs> in theory, yeah, in theory, <laughs> but the way that PTO is laid out, it's like, you have to, in the therapy world, you have to book your time off so far in advance that sometimes I wish that I could just take a day off in the middle of a really rough patch and say, you know what, I need to take a mental health day and I need to take this day off for me. But then like in theory, you can take a sick yeah. day, you know? And I know that my manager at least would probably be supportive if I really explained it that way. But then I feel guilty because that's nine patients that aren't getting care that day and nine yeah. patients that I'm responsible for. So that's tough. I think about that all the time. <laughs> like, honestly, <laughs> yeah. it's like, I, I would love to just like, sometimes I just wake up and I'm like, man, I don't know if I really want to do this today. But then it's like, I think about my schedule and I'm like, this patient is driving two hours to see me today. And they're like this, like I have some mm -hmm. patients that come from like Northern Arizona and stay in a hotel overnight to see me. And it's like, if they're on my schedule, I'm like, I can't call out like mm -hmm. for a mental health day, knowing that. And then knowing that I'm booking out a few weeks for evals, it's like, if I have evals that day, it's like, they get really upset if I call yeah. out and they have to schedule for like three weeks later. And it's like, I'm sorry. So I never try to do that, but I wish I could. Yeah. <laughs> but then well, I it should be, guilty. it should be more normalized to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. In my setting, it's really hard because, um, in inpatient rehab, every, everybody's got to be seen for three hours a day. So um, I call out because I'm feeling burnt out and now my coworkers have to pick up <laughs> my yeah. slack and now they are going to be burnt out because <laughs> you know my caseload was tough on me for a couple of days now they have to take theirs and mine and i'll mm -hmm. see you guys tomorrow you know and then like maggie said there's the guilt where you're like God, the, yeah. the, the guilt of putting that on them is just as tiring as the compassion fatigue <laughs> yeah for an outpatient they'll toss a prn therapist in there who seeing a patient that I've been seeing for a year and I know their whole story, I know what's going to trigger them. I know what treatments work and which don't, it's not even worth it sometimes to be seen by another therapist because you just, yeah, it's just the continuity of care is so powerful in those situations that, yeah, it's just not good for the therapist. It's not good for the patient. It's not worth billing for a visit sucks especially, especially in that chronic pain stuff too it's like if you're the one that's been dealing that's been working with that patient it's like part of the therapy is kind of a talk therapy for them oh yeah <laughs> it's like it makes a big difference when you're seeing somebody that you know that you trust and it's like that's part of the physical therapy sometimes mm -hmm. is literally just like listening to the patient that doesn't necessarily feel like they're being listened to elsewhere, especially in the healthcare system. It's like, yeah. you're the one spending that time with them. And then you throw in a stranger. It's like, that care is just not going to be as good just mm -hmm. for that alone. Yeah. yeah. The volume of patients I have that are like, Oh, you're my physical therapist and my regular therapist. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I feel that. And I'm going to laugh feels that way. it's yeah. a joke, but it's not a joke. It is. Very I wish real. I could double bill for physical therapy and behavioral <laughs> yes, therapy sometimes. <laughs> and I, I mean, another systemic change. I do think that we should have more, more training on that in PT school. I think that it's underutilized and part of it too. I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but part of it feels like so many of our faculty are not treating patients regularly because they're teaching us full-time. I mean, they can't see a full-time caseload and treat us. So I wonder sometimes if they, if they are kind of, if they recognize those feelings, if that makes sense, 
or if they remember how hard it is sometimes to, to be in those situations, but there's also a lot of different priorities in PT school. So I understand, but I do think that it needs to be more emphasized. I feel lucky to have had an, an hour lecture on it in residency, but I think that maybe as CIs, that's something we could do better collectively of talking to our students about, about this stuff. I yeah. wish as CIs, we had almost more like didactic time built in. Cause I would love to do like lectures or like little modules with students about things outside of clinical care. Like that would be mm-hmm. so nice. I feel like, especially as a full-time clinician where you're right. It's like in school, not all of your professors are going to be people that are actively really taking on a full caseload, or they might not even really have practiced in a long time. They might've gone from their DPT to their PhD to academics and not really treated a full caseload ever. Yeah. Which is tough. It's tough to identify with what you're going through in that, in that moment. What else do you guys do to help, um, deal with this or to help combat it? I've got another if you're, uh, if you're do you have like, another? Cause like, I do I'm, have another. I'm in this conversation for tips guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's funny. We're looking um, for answers. Yeah. Let us know if you guys have any tips listeners. Um, for sure. So part of, part of what I try and do and Henry and I have gotten better at this, but we, we, when we eat dinner together, we try and, I mean, talk about our day and ask each other how things have went. And there are some days when I can't, and I don't want to. And I just, I'm like, I want to tell him how my day was. I want to tell him about my patients, but I know that if I had a really rough day, bringing it up again is not going to help me. And I almost just want to think about something else. So we've, I've told him that, and I've communicated that. And sometimes I'll ask him how his day is and he'll ask me and I'm like, oh, it was good. And he's like, do you want to talk about it today? Or do you want to skip? And some days I'm like, yeah, let's, let's just talk about something else. Like not, not in like a, I don't want to talk, like, let's talk about (laughs) something else, like in a really emotional way, but just like a, you know, I, I want to tell you everything about my life because you're my partner, but I also just, nah, not today. And that's actually helped me a lot. It's helped me a lot to kind of detach at the, some days it works better than others, but. But I think that's good recognition. And I think that takes time to like knowing when is a time to reflect and maybe when is a time to kind of detach. Cause I think at a certain point you can overthink things. Oh, for sure. (laughs) And being at a point where it's just like, you know what, like this is how my day was, but I need to detach and I need to focus on me or I need to focus Mm -hmm. on my partner. I need to focus on whatever else is going on. And like you even said too, about like scheduling vacations, it's like just having something to look forward to, I think, and thinking about that can be a very healthy thing. (laughs) It's huge. And I, it did take me to your point, what you mentioned about it taking a while. It did take me a while to realize that and how I realized it was I would get done telling him about my day and then I would be exhausted all over again. (laughs) And then I had, Mm -hmm. and then I was just thinking about it and he's like, do you want to watch an episode of Breaking Bad? And I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I need to recover from that conversation now. And, and after going through that a few times, I'm like, "Hmm, maybe, maybe it is better for me and my mental health. If I try, as soon as I leave the clinic, try and kind of like, okay, what is something else I can do tonight? I have a podcast to 
edit. I have a house to organize now. I have a, I have a kitchen to remodel now. So that'll, (laughs) (laughs) that'll take some time in my brain, but, um, yeah, definitely along the lines of vacation, like you mentioned, Kara too, having something else in your life and hobbies, I think is huge. Something (laughs) else to think about. The one thing I can contribute to this conversation as someone who does not handle compassion fatigue well, um, I have uh, probably in in the past year um, started (laughs) reading what I'm going to call just like mindless, predictable books. Like (laughs) I, when my friends give me book suggestions, I'm like, I'm going to need you to rate that on a zero to 10 emotional scale because I need, (laughs) I need like three or lower like Hallmark movie books romance (laughs) novels for sure like I know that John and Susie are going to end up together in the end and they're going to go through a little bit of a roller coaster getting there but that's it that's what I (laughs) that's hilarious I think that's why I don't like watching Breaking Bad sometimes is that it's like that's also really heavy I was gonna say that I resonate with that so much that's why it took us so long to get through Game of Thrones because I would like get home from the residency at the time Andrew would be like let's watch Game of Thrones and I'm just like that's really heavy and I've had a heavy day like can we watch The Office instead (laughs) light and fluffy queer eye oh queer is so good i'm watching rupaul's drag race right now too also super great (laughs) yeah i think having a light show to put on when i'm like making dinner or something has helped too of just like what's something i can put on for background noise of these people's ridiculous lives that i can just kind of laugh at Yes. Or just play some Animal Crossing music in I the was background. Just gonna I was gonna set a, a it's long, been a while. A timer of how long it took one of you to mention Animal it's Crossing. It's been this many days since <laughs> uh, I had to. <laughs> um any any last minute comments about this? Yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to mention, which is not super last minute, but um, we've talked about it a little bit. I um, experience what I'm going to call reverse compassion fatigue. Mm. Um, I, um, as some of you probably know, I um, lost my older brother about a year ago. Um, and I, you know, when you go something, go through something so heavy in your personal life that you can't feel at work, it was like the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, when, you know, a patient is sad and upset and you're, you know, you feel so guilty because you're like, you, you know, you're upset because you're in pain, but I can't even register that as a problem because you have no idea what I'm feeling in my own life. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it too, of like, you have a, I think about it like a full glass of water. Like this is how much compassion I have on a daily basis. (laughs) And if something happens in my personal life that the cup is like, got a few drops left when you're going into work. It's like, (laughs) all right, first patient gets these two and the rest of the day is tough. And that numbs you down even more. For sure. Because you're like, man, if you think other people's feelings numb you down, like going through something, you know, that heavy in your own life, I'm sorry that you're in pain, but I can't, I can't feel for you right now. (laughs) Yeah. And if that, you know, continues to make you feel guilty because I'm supposed to be here to feel for you. And, you know, I'm like, I'm going through the CPI with my student right now. And you're supposed to like check your biases and your, you know, your feelings at the door and just be this wonderful, perfect physical therapist. And that's just so unrealistic it's in the real world when you're a real human. 
a real human being and not, you know, a PT robot. <laughs> it's so hard to be positive all the time. And I, it's hard, like transitioning from one patient to another and being like, all right, that one's gone in, in with this one. It's hard to put aside everything that happens in your personal life. Like even, I mean, definitely not the same situation as you just explained Carly, but even like going through this house stress and like having to show up to work the next day after <laughs> like realizing half my kitchen is gone and I have to drain my whole savings account to remodel it. It's yeah. It's tough to like hear about somebody talk about their back pain for, for of time be like, you know what? I've got my own problems here. Yeah. You can't just say that, <laughs> but you at the can't. same time, that's where work is almost kind of nice. Cause then work is almost like your detachment from your personal stress. And that's kind of what I've realized when I've had a couple of things going on outside of work where I'm just like, Oh my God. But then I go to work and it's like, that's my opportunity to not think about my own stress so much. So that's when work is actually kind of therapeutic for me. <laughs> I feel like it's one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, It's (laughs) It's like, it's, it flips around and it's a roller coaster. (laughs) Work is now going to become half of my home as I'm going to be washing my dishes in our break room, I think. So (laughs) (laughs) there you go. That's that work-life separation. (laughs) I'll just come with a big old bucket every morning of my dirty dishes and a sponge. (laughs) It's funny, but it's not. <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm crying. Exactly. If, if you're exactly. not laughing, you're crying. That was a that was a good point, Carly. Any other any other points, Kara? Nope, Carly? I'm tapped out. I think I'm fresh out. I think last thing I'll say is that it. I mean, it's something that everybody's going to go through at some point, and I don't think that it's worth not acknowledging it. I was going to say the best thing I think you can do is acknowledge that that's what you're, that's what's happening. Yeah. It's like, I'm not a shitty physical therapist. I'm compassion fatigued and it will come and it'll go. And you just have yes. to do what you can to muddle through it when it sucks and know that it'll, you'll be back in a, in a peak eventually. Eventually. Couldn't have said it better. I think it's time for a game. Agreed. All right, guys, we're going to play a game. Um, Yes. So this game is called the initials game, um, which is a real game you can buy. Don't come for me. Um, (laughs) And not a sponsor, not a sponsor. (laughs) Uh, So what I'm going to do is give you uh, an initials. We're going to have, they're going to be the same initials and you get six clues to guess the two word thing that those two initials stand for um yep now it's always good at this (laughs) it's a person a place or a thing it's six clues i'll give you like 15 seconds between each clue whenever you have a guess just holla it out okay and in honor of wedding week the initials we will be using are bp which is my fiance um which is a coincidence. I did not choose it because of that. Um, sure. Anyway, all right. So first one, person, place, or thing starts with BP. First clue is has connections to Dartmouth and Bucknell. Oh, God. Clue number two 
has been a regular feature on The Tonight Show. Clue number three, most commonly connected to a triangle formation. I want to say beer pong. I knew that was right as soon as you said it. Nice job, kid. Yeah. Nice the job. other clues we're going to be includes bouncing, often mm-hmm. seen at sporting events, garages, or basements, and then <laughs> or at an elimination drinking game. Nice. Nice. All right. Okay. All right. Same, Same initials. <laughs> Same initials. Still BP. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Clue number one, sometimes includes art or holograms. Clue number two, connected to Guitar Hero. Clue number three, connected to performances. Is bass player? No. Is that a thing? Ooh, good, guess. A good guess. Mm. Clue number four, appeared in 1992's Wayne's World. Clue number five, often end up as memorabilia. And clue number six, this is a credential that gives access to restricted areas at a concert. Backstage pass. Bingo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Kara is in. You know, when I was preparing this, I told Brayden, Kara's going to be so flipping good at this game. <laughs> Thanks All for right. the confidence, Carly. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie's going to really suck at this, so let's play it. <laughs> let's really screw her over. Uh, there hasn't been a single movie reference yet, Mag. So I know. It wasn't I appreciate you. <laughs> oh, uh, you should stop appreciating me because it's time for the last one. Oh, yikes. All right. All right. Uh, all, first three clues are all movie references. <laughs> Shoot. All right. Number one. Give them to me. Was seen in 2020's Doolittle. Yeah, I'm out. Still BP. <laughs> Number two was seen in 2002's Die Another Day. Clue number three appeared in 2014's Paddington. Clue number four seen on the Netflix series The Crown. I haven't seen or heard of. I haven't seen these. I've heard of some of them. I was going to say, I've heard of all of them. I haven't seen any of them either, though. Clue number five is sometimes a site for mourning. With a U. Mourning. And clue number six has over 700 rooms and has the largest private garden in London. Buckingham Palace. Bingo! Kara <laughs> for the win. For three. Nice job, Kara. <laughs> excellent excellent as usual i don't know if we're keeping score but i feel like kara has won every game we've ever played i like games games that was fun good game carly good game thank you so much for listening to this week's pt pov you can find us on both spotify and apple podcasts and we would really appreciate it if you would like us and subscribe see you next time Thank you.